0: Hello and welcome to Superhero Ethics. Today we're continuing our journey through comic book history with special guest Jessica Plummer. And we're talking about the end of the golden age of comics, the years immediately after World War II and the coming of the Comics Code Authority, the force that worked as pretty much a censor on comic books and changed comic books then and still still continues to have little effects today. And we will discuss all that and more after a commercial break, but first I just want to add a quick personal note. My partner and I have decided that instead of trying to schedule something when COVID ends, when we have no idea when that will happen, she and I are going to have a small little wedding ceremony on October 10th. I'll let you all know that, just to let you know that in preparation for that, I probably won't be creating any new content in the week leading up to that or the week after. So those first two weeks in October, there will probably not be any content, but once that ends, I'll be right back giving you more content on Superhero Ethics, Star Wars Universe podcast and all the great other parts of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network that I'm able to be a co-creator on. So with that, thank you so much, and here's that commercial message. Hello, I'm Matthew. I'm your host. I am joined today by Jessica Plummer, who's been a frequent guest on the show for a lot of topics, but every time we have you on, Jessica, we always sort of get just glimpses of your comic book history knowledge. Um, uh, something that Jessica writes about quite a lot on bookriot.com. And um, so now we're continuing this series on the history of comic books. I'm really excited to have you back for it. Jess, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So let's just set the idea of what we're talking about today. Today, and um, you know this better than I do, so make sure I get this right. Today we're talking about the years after World War II, the sort of second half of the Golden Age from 1946 to about 1955. And this is the period when comics start changing, and then in response to that, um, or in response to many social things, um, a real pushback against comics emerges, and a real push to censor comic books uh, emerges, which leads to the self-censorship of comics by the uh, CCA, the Comics Code Authority. Um, do I have that right About in terms of like what's the timescale and the major events we're talking about today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about you know, it's, it's very hard to place an exact time frame around things. Um, so we'll be talking a little bit about, you know, stuff that happened during the war and even before the war and the knockdown effects of the CCA, um, right. as it, you know, flows into the 50s and 60s. But yeah, the comic book industry started to change really significantly after the war and the comics code was put into effect in 1954 so that that pretty much covers the time frame you laid out.
0: Yeah. So and let's just kind of start by catching up a bit. Um, last time we talked about the the beginning of the golden age of comics, the start of Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman, and sort of how this whole comic book thing got started, and especially the Jewish origins of it and some of the social justice origins of it. Um, What are kind of one or two last things that maybe we didn't kind of – that you wanted to kind of touch on briefly from that period or new characters you wanted to make sure we knew about that are going to be important for us as we go forward?
1: Um, I mean, I think one of the the key things about uh, the early Golden Age – or, I mean, when people say the Golden Age, they really do mean the World War II era. The time period that we're talking about now is sort of a – technically, it's part of the Golden Age, but it's just sort of like a middle, like – time that nobody's really that invested in um except when talking about this sort of um nobody's that invested in in terms of superheroes because it wasn't a very active time for superhero stuff right um but that early period it was really sort of um it was very anything goes it was a completely new medium Mm. um superheroes were a completely new concept i mean they had been you know, they, they took their inspiration from earlier characters, but they were a really new idea. Um, and so it was it was a very creative sort of free for all in the industry. And people were just throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what stuck. the ideas of like um, trademark uh, and plagiarism were also still being worked out, like what it does and does not constitute plagiarism, which we talked about a bit mm-hmm. in um, the previous episode in this series with the Captain Marvel lawsuit, Um, but like, you know, creators were stealing from each other willy-nilly, and (laughs) I mean, everybody was just sort of like having fun doing whatever they felt like doing because it was cheap pulp entertainment that cost 10 cents, and nobody was looking at it that closely until all of a sudden they were, which I think, you know, is very relevant to what we're going to talk about today.
0: Right. And so one last thing I just wanted to tease out from that time. Um, I know that you are just a little bit of a fan of Oliver Queen, the green arrow. Um, And because that character is going to come up a lot as we go forward, why don't you tell us a little bit about his origins? I love him. I love him so much.
1: Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. He is also a golden age character. Um, He debuted in 1941. Uh, It was created by Mort Weisinger and George Papp. And, um, the funny thing about him is that basically, uh, so Mort Weisinger was the editor of the Superman titles for like a billion years, like the, the heart of the silver age where Superman absolutely dominated the newsstands and mm-hmm. he, he had created Green Arrow and he liked him, So he, Green Arrow and his sidekick Speedy, um, are, in like every single issue of a couple of superman books um adventure comics and world's finest comics were both like anthology books with superman as the lead character or in the case of world's finest comics superman and batman is like a team-up um Mm. and then there'd be all these backup stories and green arrow and speedy are in all of these backup stories from the early 40s to like 1969 which i know because i've been reading through those appearances (laughs) because that's how much i love these characters um but the the thing that's interesting about uh the 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 interesting effect of that is that um we'll talk about this more in our next episode but a lot of dc characters went through this major upheaval Um, in the late 50s and early 60s because they had kind of disappeared during the time period we'll be talking about this episode Mm. and they were very much revitalized um, when superheroes became popular again in the beginning of the Silver Age but because Green Arrow had just sort of been like you know riding along on Superman's coattails or cape tails or whatever for decades he really hadn't Changed and so he doesn't get a significant makeover until 1970, and that's when we really start to see the the modern character. And that's actually considered by many people to be sort of the date that they pin the start of the Bronze Age to, because mm. like the the revitalization of the Flash, Barry Allen. Well, Barry Allen was a new character at this point in 1956, as the start of the Silver Age, and the makeover of Green Arrow. Uh, and his team up with Green Lantern for all these like social justice stories in 1970 as the start of the Bronze Age.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. That totally makes sense. Um, And for a lot of people, actually, first let me ask you a short question. So was, was Oliver Queen and Arrow appearing in the same story and in the same world as Superman? Or was it just that it would be like five pages at the end of a Superman book would be this totally different story starring Oliver Queen and Speedy?
1: Yeah, it's a totally different story. Um, It took a while for DC to create sort of a unified universe. Um, mm. When So I mentioned that World's Finest was a team-up book for Superman and Batman. Originally, it actually wasn't. It was a book that starred Superman and Batman, but they were in separate stories. So you'd open the book and there'd be a Superman story. And then there'd be a bunch of other oh, stuff. Okay. Yeah, there'd be a bunch of other stuff in the middle to kind of keep you reading. And then at the end, there'd be a Batman and Robin story. Um, and then you get, like, Johnny Quick in there and Aquaman. <laughs> and right. I did not realize Johnny Quick had so many appearances. <laughs> I mean, I like I think the I guy. I i heard the
0: character before.
1: Um, he's like the Flash, except he recites a mathematical formula to help him go fast.
0: Oh, okay. That's, that, that
1: sounds plausible. I, I mean, uh, it's science. Um, well, and, and so for those of us... Oh, go ahead. Well, so then eventually they actually put Batman and Superman in a story together. And then once um, the idea of the Justice Society of America, which is like the precursor to the Justice League, uh, when the Justice mm-hmm. Society debuted, that was pretty firmly, firmly establishing, like, yes, all of these characters exist in the same universe. But... Ollie Got didn't it. really interact with other members of the Justice, or other superheroes until the early 60s when he joined the Justice League and then Speedy joined the Teen Titans in the late 60s.
0: Got it. And, and briefly, for those of us who, like myself, um, I know about Oliver Queen because of the CW Berlantiverse. Um, how much does that character, and obviously that's a very brooding, very teen romance, <laughs> new breakups every episode kind of world, uh, and don't get me wrong, I love the Arrow universe, um, but but for those of us who mostly know Arrow through that, what what is this? What is the Arrow that emerges at this point in the in the mid forties? How is that different?
1: Oh, he's. I mean, he's super generic. I mean, I would say that the the version on the show he's kind of a Batman light. Like the creators have yeah. said, they wanted to do a Batman show and they couldn't get permission, so they
0: <laughs> just
1: did a Green Arrow show. Um, yeah, and. I mean, I've always, like, if I if I have to explain who Green Arrow is to people, I say he's Batman meets Robin Hood. Like, that's the basic idea. Um, but in these early stories, uh, when I say he's Batman meets Robin Hood, he is not Batman, the brooding, tormented, tragic figure. He's, right. like, Batman, not quite the Adam West version yet, because this predates that, but, like, a very, you know affable approachable like Mm. fully deputized you know
0: (laughs) bouncy and happy without quite being campy
1: exactly um but he's got arrows instead of you know things in his utility belt
0: (laughs) so a lot the uh you failed this city is not quite showing up in the 40s yet (laughs) oh that's a coinage of the show he
1: never said that in the comics until the show came along um he (laughs) nice He's much more like when he does develop an actual personality. It's much more like if you've got like a really liberal uncle who gets drunk at family events and then just starts yelling about Republicans. (laughs) That's Oliver Queen, and that's why I love him.
0: I really want my sister to have children so I can be that. (laughs) That's pretty much my life ambition. You do have to grow Um, a funny beard though. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sort of on the way there, but but yeah, that does make sense. And I know in the TV show we see some elements of that of the like. I have lots of money, but I'm questioning the whole world of people with money and that kind of stuff. So it's nice to know that that that, that does have some origins in the in the in the comic book character, even if that comes rather later. So let's now shift into what is I think kind of the, the main event for um this period of time, the CCA. Um, and in studying this somewhat, I like obviously it seems like you gotta go on a real journey to go from the the kind of patriotic superheroes we were talking about last episode to a point where, Middle America is so afraid of comic books that this, you know, that people are, literally, and we'll talk about these details, but like you know, people are dancing around fires. Kids are throwing comic books into the into the fires, and people are talking about this as the the biggest menace to their children. Um, so let's talk about the late forties and how do we get there? What happens to comic books after World War II? Well, so, um,
1: comic books continued to be very very successful and they sold very very well um i'm just so uh i'm going to be uh, mentioning this book a lot uh while we talk about this uh the 10 cent plague the great comic book scare and how it changed america by david hogs i hope i pronounced that correctly um and it's basically talking about exactly what we're talking about it's excellent um so just uh I'm just looking at some numbers that he gives right at the beginning of the book, um, and this is a little bit later than when you're talking about, um, but, uh, he says, comics were selling between, in the mid-forties, comics were selling between 80 million and 100 million copies every week, with a typical mm-hmm. issue passed along or traded to 6 to 10 readers, thereby reaching more people than movies, television, radio, or magazines for adults. By 1952, more than 20 publishers were producing nearly 650 comics titles per month, employing well over a 1,000 artists, writers, editors, letterers, and others, among them women such as uh, uh, Janice Value, who's a woman that he's uh, interviewing at the beginning of this, as well as untold members of racial, ethnic, and social minorities who turned to comics because they thought of themselves or their ideas as unwelcome in more reputable spheres, spheres of publishing and entertainment. Um, so, comics, the, the comic book industry as a whole was doing great. They were right. selling like hot cakes. Um, everybody, you know, most children were reading them. Um, again, we, we talked last time about, and something like 97% of boys and 92% of girls read comics or something like that. Um, I saw a contemporary statistic uh, when I was uh, flipping through the Cent Plague earlier today that said nine in ten households had comics in them. Um, yeah. Really, really, I did really just
0: some, Sorry. Go ahead. I, I did just some anecdotal kind of research on this and talked to a lot of my family members because my father and his siblings um, and a lot of their cousins and things like that were born in the early 40s. And so this is when they were kids. And I was amazed. I mean, these were people who were not geeks. They would no. never think of looking at science fiction. They were pretty mainstream, like Jewish New York kids, and they all read comic books, and they all had very positive memories of comic books. And it's, it's funny because today, you know, we're just a couple of days away from um, a TV show based on a comic book, Watchmen, winning major uh, Emmy Awards for Best Writing and Best Acting. Um, and and there's a sort of feeling of like, oh, my God, comic books are finally going mainstream. And so, I think it's really powerful to remember, like, no, no, this isn't like like they're going mainstream again. Uh, back then, oh, they yeah. really were a mainstream. This wasn't the like the two weird kids in your high school no one <laughs> talked to. They read comic books, like, and I say that as being that weird kid. Um, but but yeah, it's interesting to see like how how different that that is from our perception of it today.
1: Yeah, and I mean, when you think about it, if we're talking about the late forties, very few households had a television at that point. Um, and the other thing about Entertainment at the time is, and this is, I'm oversimplifying a bit, um, but my understanding is that the bulk of it was, you know, what today we call four quadrant entertainment, which is basically it appeals to, uh, men, women, boys, and girls. <laughs> Those are the four quadrants, right? Um, okay. you, you didn't have targeted media, um, right. So, Because if a household had a television, then your parents decided what you watched. If if you didn't have a television, you definitely had a radio. Your parents decided what you listened to. If you go to the movies, the movies are not really at that point so much made for segmented audiences. I mean, they definitely have genres, but Mm -hmm. they're not really, you know, nobody's saying this movie is for... Women ages eighteen to thirty five, the way that they might now,
0: right? There's no, and there's no so, demographics. I mean, no one cares what people of color are thinking about or what like college educated or non college educated. It's just people. Well, yeah, mean I the mean, fault of like white middle class.
1: I would say there was definitely like a, a segment of the film industry that catered to black people and had black actors. um mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't know that details, but I'm sure that that existed for radio as well. So a little bit of demographic segmenting by race, but certainly not for that I know of for other ethnic groups. I mean, there were like Yiddish newspapers and stuff. Well, anyway, the point is, (laughs) if you're a kid, there's very little media that's just for you. But comic books are for you. And that sort of anarchic quality to them that was created by it being a brand new industry really appealed to children. And so they were just devouring them. And then there was increased readership because um comics were being sent during the war, comics were being sent to the GIs as like a little, you know, memento of home. I mean, these are very, these are very young men. If you're 18, it's not that long since you started reading com or stopped reading comics, maybe. And it's okay. nice to see Captain Marvel again or whoever. Um, Yeah, I can see that. And so it it expanded the readership into that sort of young adult market. And when I say young adult, I mean adults who are young and not teenagers like we mean today. Right. Um, but yeah, so comics were selling very well. Um, but not superheroes necessarily. Um, Mm. Superman continued to sell well. Uh, Batman and Wonder Woman did fine. Um, Captain Marvel was doing great until DC really tied Fawcett Comics' hands up with the lawsuit and they couldn't really publish anymore. Um, mm-hmm. you know, other publishers had other characters that they were publishing. Um Timely, which would become Marvel, had still had Captain America and Namor the Submariner and the original Human Torch and a few others. Um, but that genre was not a super popular genre after the war. Um, I'm not really sure why. I don't know if it was, you know, because the idea of a miraculous hero who could save us from the bad thing didn't feel as necessary
0: once the war right. was over. The um, U.S. Army had just done that.
1: Yeah. And like we do see a turn towards sort of atomic based fears, um, mm. but not quite yet. Uh, not really at this point.
0: Um, but we do start seeing the comics turning darker, right? Isn't this when, like, a lot of more the horror comics and kind of more the, the lurid comics and uh, and those kind of things start to develop?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the genres that start to emerge here, I mean, there are, there are a lot of different genres. Like, you also see westerns becoming popular at this point and actually war comics. Um, romance right. comics became a thing. Uh, this is really – I was looking at, like um, – comics debuts by year during the period that we're discussing and archie comics started putting out a lot more books so these characters weren't new but all of a sudden jughead had his jughead had his own comic and betty and veronica had a comic and you could see like the company is doing very well because they're able to release more and more books with these kinds of characters um and
0: and that's what i was going to ask when you say romance comics do you mean something like archie where it's like high school hijinks and mostly like who's going to take who to the prom and that kind of thing? No,
1: those are generally generally considered like teen humor comics. Um romance okay. comics are hilarious and amazing. They're <laughs> these really soapy like I'm trying to think of good examples. It's like they're all from the point of view of a young woman who's like desperately in love with some guy and uh, he doesn't notice her, and then she goes to a dancing. She's pretty, and he does, and he gets married, or whatever. Or like she's in a love right. triangle. Like they're very, very soapy, over the top. I mean, they're great. I say this with all like love and respect. Um, uh-huh. But it's it's stuff like I feel like I read one once where um, the the heroine was like a military nurse, and she fell in love with a GI who'd been blinded by a bomb or something. and She was afraid that when his vision came back, he would think she was ugly. I'm sure she, like, wore glasses or had freckles or some
0: fake, <laughs> <laughs> ugly something. thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but then he still loved her and they got married. Like, <laughs> that kind right. of thing.
0: Not and, humor. And we're not talking about bodice ripper, lurid romance novel stuff. We're talking about very chaste romance stories, right? Yeah, right.
1: this was all really chaste stuff. Um, this was aimed at girls. Um, right. So I think the the idea that, young women, or really, I guess, tweenage girls would be the, I'm not even sure what the age, the target age was, but I think the idea that like, girls of the target audience would be, would have sexual desires or be interested in sexual content was just like not, it was beyond their conception. If you see something sexy in a comic from this era, it's, and it's not Wonder Woman, it's for boys.
0: Right. This is this is the like um Prince Charming Cinderella understanding of romance. This is not yet the, the anything sexual or anything like that. That makes sense.
1: No, it's a very chaste um sort of uh, the idea is for the reader to be able to put herself right. into that story.
0: So what were the things that were freaking people out that, that led to this big pushback against the the, the ten cent plague?
1: So um, the big genres, the ones that you that you alluded to that were getting especially popular were crime and horror. Um, so these were published by all sorts of publishers, but EC Comics is particularly famous for them. Um, and they were really very lurid, um, often quite nihilistic. So it wasn't like you know, when we think of a crime story now, I think we're thinking more of a detective story or a procedural. Mm-hmm. And so even though it can be very dark, like, you know, you watch a, any police procedural on TV and it starts with a, you know, raped woman's body found in a dumpster and it goes from there. Right. Um, these were often just like, somebody like a a bank robber decides to double cross his friends after they rob this bank. And so he tries to, and they all kill each other. And that's the end of the
0: story. Like there weren't reservoir dogs, the cart. Basically it's Quentin Tarantino writing comic books at this point in time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A little bit like they weren't, they weren't edifying in any way. And I'm not like, I say that without any, um, that's a value neutral statement. I don't necessarily think comics need to be edifying. But they weren't. Um, it was yeah. often like, a monster eats a pretty girl. Because the <laughs> artist wanted to draw a pretty girl and had to draw a monster.
0: And, and you start to see that seep into the superheroes? Like, does Batman start dealing with 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 gangsters who are all killing each other? Or is Superman fighting the monsters that are eating pretty girls? Or is this all kept kind of outside of the superhero stories?
1: No, this is really for um, the... Those particular genres, um, right. the one thing you, it depends on the publisher, you do see a little bit more of, um, is sex. So, mm. uh, not really, I, I can't think of many examples, if any, from what would become DC or Marvel. I mean, Catwoman was slinking around, but she, I don't think she got significantly sexier in the late right. 40s think she had been in the early 40s um
0: we don't see lois lane all of a sudden having her clothing ripped by whatever terrible thing she's in or that kind of oh no lois stuff.
1: lois stayed pretty much the same um during this era um if you look at uh for example i sent you this cover before we started talking um but uh if you look at phantom lady covers from the time yeah Um, so she was published by Quality Comics. She has this very, very skimpy outfit that's, like, two little flaps of cloth over her breast and then, like, hot pants, and they're kind of connected in the middle. Those covers got very, very cheesecake-y.
0: And in that one, she's holding a piece of rope where, like, there's no, like, lasso of truthness. This is purely just a, like, come tie me up, sir. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've read a lot of Blue Beetle
1: comics from this period, too. And um, Blue Beetle was published by Fox Comics at the time. And Fox, <laughs> Fox was always a leader in how sleazy can we be? <laughs> so, oh, <my> <laughs> yeah, a lot of these covers have very, like, not Phantom Lady in her skimpy outfit, but, like, a similarly very very cheesecakey lady very curvaceous uh right. being tied up or terrorized and her clothing is torn and like gangsters are menacing her with knives and then like maybe you see blue beetle like peeking in a window like he's going to come and rescue her but like maybe he'll stop and watch for a bit first like these right. are very they're they're pretty funny honestly yeah
2: um
1: what and they are s- they're character? they're sexy they're they're like if you look at the other media that was coming out during the late 40s like this is not what you would expect and i i am often surprised by how saucy some of these covers can get
0: yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense and so it's interesting so this is kind of what leads to this big pushback against comics overall and that we'll get to in specific in a minute but so am i right in saying that like one of the things that most impacted the 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 superhero comic book history, this period of censorship and the uh comics code, really had nothing to do with comic book that that superheroes were kind of the collateral damage here because it was mostly a fight against non superhero comic books is is that kind of a fair statement
1: i mean yes and no um I would say. I mean, I think, you know, to, to unpack that a little bit more, we'll have to get into Frederick Wortham himself and his, his actual sort of accusations about right comics. Let's, um, let's do that then. Let, let's yeah. talk about
0: what actually happens and how we get to the CCA, and then we can talk about who's getting hit by it. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, m- uh, good Mr. Wortham.
1: So, uh, Dr. Wortham, I think you Not mean. Dr. Wortham, sorry. <laughs> um, so first, I, I do want to point out that... Um, Frederick Wortham, who is the most infamous critic of comics as being bad for children, but he was certainly not the first. Um, again, flipping through the Ten Cent Plague, I saw that he had pointed out that as early as 1909, parents were writing to the newspapers and telling Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst that their comic strips were bad for children. And this was well before comic books were a thing. And I think this is, it's just a thing that happens in media. So, like, when you and I were kids, uh, rap and heavy metal and video games yep. were getting this kind of treatment. And,
0: and uh, I think I'm a little older than you. With my generation, it was Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, teaching Satanism. You know, the satanic rituals of rolling rolling t- 12-sided dice. <laughs> and, you know, what, 200 years ago?
1: That number's probably wrong. Um, but novels... Novels were supposed to be bad for young women um so I think any kind of popular entertainment uh that especially becomes popular with either children in general or girls and young women in particular is going to get a lot of attention um from uh, I'll be generous and say well meaning adults <laughs> who want to make sure that their children are not obsessed with a thing that is bad for them. Um, and, you know, in the case of comic books, that they, they had been popular throughout the war, but I think the grown-ups had other stuff to worry about. So it was yeah. after the war, part of, you know, part of what it was, was that in order to capture those readers who were not so into superheroes, the crime and horror stuff got more lurid, but it was also because the parents had stuff to worry about now. Or had room to worry about things that weren't, you know, my son is fighting in the Pacific and might die.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and this is, I know when you and I talked, I had sort of asked about if this is all connected directly to McCarthyism and that kind of thing. And um, from what you said and and some of the research I did, it sounds like not really like no one was ever thinking like this was communist influence or that kind of thing. But it, it goes to you know, the McCarthyist Red Scare and the fears about Martin Luther King and all these things, there there was this sort of general aura of we have to protect our culture from all of these terrible influences. You know, our children can't become communist, They can't listen to black people music. They can't read comic books. It seems like it's all, there's a general sort of cultural idea of we have to protect the innocence of American youth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I mean, I, I know I said I didn't really think that it had uh, a lot to do with communism um and i think it didn't specifically because we were talking about whether the fact that the so many of the creators were jewish um was connected to that and i many people didn't know the names of the creators because they weren't credited in the books themselves right. and i feel like a lot of these parents even if the names had been in the book would not have bothered to look because it's these were not these are not people who were actually reading the comics that they were upset about, like, right. ever,
0: really. Um, I mean, no censor ever has. I mean, no. that's kind of the way censorship works. Yeah. That's yes, understood.
1: Um, but uh, just, again, flipping through the Ten Cent Plague, uh, he talks about comics being accused of being both communist and fascist. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. They're everything you don't like. They're everything that's bad for America and could hurt your kids. Okay um there there is a certain amount of you know if you can pick up on the subtext of it, comics and not just superhero comics really did reflect the immigrant experience and the second generation experience right. um and they were they were urban they were mostly made out they mostly came out of New York City if you mm-hmm. thought that that was the place where virtue went to die you weren't going to want your kids reading comics. I mean, we are current, I am currently living in an anarchist zone or something. Yeah,
0: no, that's true. So. That's true. <laughs> and, and I think that's an interesting point where, um, I think a lot of the times when people critique stuff coming out of New York city and like cultural elites ruining our children and that kind of stuff, there's often a lot of coded antisemitism in those arguments. And I, I think it's kind of ironic, but, but not at all surprising that you might have had these arguments that were kind of laced with a little bit of like, you know, these things aren't good American values and that kind of like hidden anti-Semitism type things without ever realizing that most of the authors are Jewish. <laughs> like it yeah. seems the exact kind of irony we get in this a lot. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about uh, Frederick Wortham himself. So he writes this tract called Seduction of the Innocent. Um, and the this baller is clearly a baller title. Yeah, this is clearly a a well laid out logical reasonable show both sides kind of approach (laughs) to the the comic book idea right or or am I missing something no not so much um yeah Yeah. so
1: Wertham Wertham was a, a psychiatrist and like I will give him his due he like he was not a monster um he really was genuinely concerned about the youth of America and I was reading up on him and he actually was like a huge ally uh, for black people at the time. Um, And he like campaigned for desegregation of the army during world war II, And he was friends with Ralph Ellison and like, Oh wow. Yeah. Like again, not all bad. And like part of the reason that he became sort of so fixated on comic books was because he was working with children. He was working with, you know, what were then classified as quote unquote disturbed children, but disadvantaged children, kids with mental health problems. And he was trying to figure out why, why was this happening? Um, but of course, then his methodology, like one of the big things that he kind of threw out the window was the principle that uh, correlation is not causation. So he, you know, would talk to 10 kids who were like in an institution and say, do you all read comics? And they'd say, yes, because all the kids read comics. It wasn't these kids right. in the institution read comics and that's why they were in an institution. It was it was like saying, do you breathe oxygen? Like, yeah. Right. I'm a kid in 1946. What do you think?
0: Yeah. And, um, and it makes sense. It makes sense, especially because, like, you know, we're starting to get into the 50s. We're starting to get into some of the, like, post-war existential, like, nihilism that starts to pop up a lot and, and leads to the beat generation to a large extent. And so I can imagine that there's a lot of forces being, like, you know, we don't want to actually look inward. We don't want to ask, could there be anything wrong with this? You know, the American century is just dawning. Everything about America is supposed to be perfect. We just freed the world. And so when you don't want to look at the idea of, like, angst within the youth, you know, it has to be like, oh, okay, no, it's because, it's because of these comic books. These books are taking the pure and innocent and making them bad. There's certainly nothing inherent in our own culture that would do this.
1: Absolutely. And this was also when um terms like teenager and juvenile delinquent uh,
0: mm. be-
1: were, started to be in use and juvenile delinquency was considered a huge problem. And, you know, to be fair, you did have a lot of young people coming out of the war years or returning from war and not really knowing what to do with themselves. Yeah. Um I don't think that uh, I don't think young people at the time were any worse or better than young people have ever been. I think people are people. And, you know, if you go back to like ancient ri- Roman writings, you'll see people complaining that teenagers don't listen to their elders. Yeah. So th- it's I mean, not an What
0: hormones do to you when you hit puberty hasn't really, that's not tied to a society. <laughs> that's just, you know, chemicals.
1: Exactly. Um, but it was, it was a buzzword um sort of the way that Satanist was, you know, back in the eighties. And um Wortham's central thesis was that comic books cause juvenile delinquency. Mm. Um and again he he had these very uh non scientific studies where he you know, it's unclear how much he was deliberately fudging things to get to the result he wanted and how much he was so caught up in what he thought was happening that he didn't realize that he was fudging things. But, right. um, he would do things like, uh, he listed out, again, he was working with these kids who were in this, uh, this institution, um, for, uh, children with mental health problems. Um, I think it was basically, uh, it was juvie. And right. um, he said they, he, he listed all these terrible things they were doing to each other. They were choking each other. They were, you know, they a bunch of kids held a boy down and stabbed him in the arm with a pencil because they wanted to. Like all this, this whole list of different, like, vicious things that children, that children do to each other, that children have always done to each other. Um, and he said it was because of comics. And I think it was like in one case, a kid had been reading a comic that depicted a similar scenario, but like the kid never said, I am doing this because I saw it in the comic. And it was the only instance where there was even a case where what happened in real life matched what was shown in the comic. And all the mm-hmm. other ones, there was no parallel to anything happening in a comic book. But he said, all of these terrible things these children did to each other are because they got the idea from comics, which is just, like, obviously not true. Like, that's not yeah. what happened there. And there were all these stories circulating at the time, not just from War them, but like, were in the news and stuff about kids who... Um, they saw uh, there was one story I mean these are terrible stories. There was one story about a little boy who um, hanged himself and uh, the there was a comic book like on his like he he basically put a noose over his bed and hanged himself and when they found him there was a comic on his bed that depicted someone being hanged and the coroner determined that he was like playing, he was trying to figure out if he could do what they were doing and he slipped. Um, mm. and there are stories of kids jumping off the roof because they thought they could fly like Superman. There's one story about um, these two brothers who got into a fight over a comic book. They were fighting over who got to read it. And so one of them took his dad's gun and shot the other one. Oof.
0: But and like it, it seems like we're always going to have horror stories like that, but that there's this real... Tendency, maybe it's in other cultures as well, but especially in American culture, to say, you know, we can't actually think that there's anything fundamentally wrong with our culture that's causing this, and so it must be these outside influences. This is what I was talking about before. What it makes me think of, honestly, is um, when the Columbine shooting happened uh, Mm -hmm. back in the late '90s. You know, these were two very troubled young men. They had been radicalized in a lot of ways. They had been uh, you know that that the, there was a whole lot of discussions that could have been had about were they were they radicalized or were they the victims of bullying and like high school class structures and stuff or like what the causes were but instead it mostly became about you know goth culture and yep. like me and my friends who were hardcore goths at the time basically like wouldn't be let into stores because we were wearing long dark coats because yeah. that's what they were from um you know and it's just it's it and i and I remember it was a time where i I was like you know, let's actually talk about whatever issues drove them to this. Um, Because I I think that's one of the things that will happen a lot. It sounds like this is very much what happened here is you're always going to have kids... I don't want this to be the case, but you're always going to have emotionally troubled kids who do things that emotionally troubled kids do. And we should work as a society to reduce that and to deal with it. But it seems like in every generation there's some cause that people want to say, well, the two most extreme people who are comic book fans did these terrible things so let's assume that comic books caused that, and thus, you know, in the same way that people don't say, like, look at all the many people who play violent video games and don't go commit shootings, you know? Mm-hmm. it's the As you said, correlation doesn't mean causation.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, if every kid in America is reading comics, and point zero 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 one percent of them commit violent acts, I don't think that is proof that comics lead to violent acts, just... Same with video games, same with, uh, no, you're, uh, you're exactly right. And I was a freshman in high school when Columbine happened and all of a sudden we weren't allowed to wear trench coats to school. Not that anybody was wearing a trench coat to school because <laughs> it's a weird thing to wear. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we you're didn't goth. have goths in my school. We had like one goth. She was That's very bad. lonely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fair uh I think you were not a high schooler when Trent Reznor came about so we had a very different no. in that regard
1: oh no my my high school football team uh ran out onto the field to the, the Backstreet Boys larger than life we were we were
0: extremely wholesome oh wow okay yep we, we went to very different schools <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and, and just to give people an idea of just how uh, it's funny because um you know Wortham is so upset about the um the luridness of comics and that's exactly the word i was about to use to describe his language that he uses this very lurid purple prose um to give an example like of one of the things he says is and i quote i think hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry (laughs) like he's not pulling any punches he's not saying you know here's one he he is saying like this is a complete social evil straight from the bowels of hell um one thing I, I looked at somewhat is, is where some other folks went. Um, and one thing I saw was that a lot of the uh, the hate about it was driven by churches and like church youth groups. And, mm-hmm. and especially there in more conservative ones, there was, you know, because this is the beginning of like the Billy Graham era and like, you know, faith revivals and stuff. And there was a lot of, you know, this is the work of the devil. You know, these are the devil's tools. This is the devil at work. We have to destroy all this to destroy Satan. Like, I mean, people were really fired up about the hate of this. Um, yeah.
1: I think uh Wortham might be the first person to run afoul of Godwin's law. Yes. Like <laughs> Oh boy, you're uh you just lived through it, so I feel like you should know that you are overstating things, but okay. Um, yeah, uh a lot of a lot of religious groups, a lot of church groups specifically, um, were very anti comics, um, especially not only but especially Catholics, um, and this has historical precedent because about 10 or 15 years prior, um, Catholics in particular, uh, Catholic organizations, I should say, not just like my grandparents, um, but uh, Catholic organizations in particular were very much behind um, the pushback against the movies for very similar uh, issues of sex and violence and were instrumental in getting the Hayes Code um Colloquial, colloquially referred to as the Hayes Code, the motion picture production code put into effect, um, in 1934, which, you know, forbade the kind of violent gangster movies that had been super popular and nudity and like you couldn't say the word pregnant and blah, blah, blah. This was, uh, the comic book industry underwent basically exactly the same thing just a little bit later. Um, but yeah, again, it was, it was very much driven by church groups and especially Catholic organizations.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. Um, especially when you remember that a lot of those same groups were very much behind McCarthyism. Um, and it's not, not coincidence that he, um, he comes out of, uh, Wisconsin, very Catholic Wisconsin. I'm pretty sure he was himself Catholic. Um, and, and a lot of the, the, there's a huge Catholic church movement that was supporting him to be sure. Um, so so let's start talking about – so what happens? So he brings up uh, all this hate of comic books and there's a lot of like local laws that start getting passed or threaten to get passed banning comic books. Or as I said, there's a whole bunch of burnings of comic books, which I always yeah. thought is kind of funny because you have to pay for the thing. In order to burn <laughs> it. So like if, if you told me I'm going to write a book and 10 million people are going to buy copies of it to burn it, cool. I just sold 10 million copies. I'm good. Yeah, didn't um, this
1: happen kind of recently with Nike? Like people are buying Nikes yes. to burn. <laughs> <It was so laughs> okay, weird. and Nikes cost a lot more than a comic book even today.
0: Yeah, but anyway, so so what does the comic book industry start to start to do, and how does this lead to the CCA?
1: Well, so to back up a little bit, because um, uh, we touched on, you did ask about superheroes, and we touched on, um, you know, all the crimes and horror comics and the sexual content that there there was pushback against. There was also, where them did have some accusations to level against superheroes primarily what would uh, superheroes from national publications which would become dc um he thought superman was a fascist um which i have seen some movies in the past decade that would make me <laughs> potentially agree with that one it makes mm-hmm. me sad um he uh and he very famously accused batman and robin of being gay um, and specifically being lovers, um, which nowadays is generally what, when people talk about seduction of the innocent, they're like, oh, the Batman and Robin are gay thing. Um, which I think is, is a really interesting, uh, accusation because, um, so I read this book many, many, like at least 15 years ago, but, um, there's a book called Batman Unmasked by Will Brooker, um, mm. which points out that he didn't really invent this idea, but he interviewed um, gay men who said, "Yeah, like they're gay." Batman and Robin are gay, and he was like, "Oh no!" Um, and again, like his 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 uh, his um, methods are not great here because he, you know, would conflate what different men said to him, or he was like, "I found." more than one guy and it was like yeah because you talk to a couple together at the same time um
0: and this this is fascinating to me as well because i feel like if you want to go after the lowest of low-hanging fruit in terms of the is there too much gayness in comic books wonder woman hanging around on the isle of lesbos or the, the no what is it the the
1: it's I, it's paradise island but no he him. did call her a lesbian oh he okay, absolutely so, so, so,
0: went for that no, it's so they keep saying out uh you know great sappho like oh, there's, yeah. there's, really, there's really strong lesbian imagery suffering you know, sappho to, like the the um you know themiscere and pillow fight kind of uh cheesecake stuff that comes out mm-hmm. a lot um so it's funny to me that they focus more on batman but yeah if they talk about wonder woman too that makes sense
1: oh yeah no i think that that is um it, i haven't read seduction of the innocent itself i think that our culture today focuses more on batman um the the accusations against batman over the accusations against wonder woman because our culture cares more about men um i think like i think that's why the wonder woman stuff kind of gets blown off um but yeah he also was like oh wonder woman's a lesbian which is like yeah kind of i mean <laughs> she's bi but yeah you're not wrong yeah. dude um and also like i mean marston wasn't gonna be like no there's no sex in these comics because there clearly was like right so they, there was so much obvious subtext
0: well i guess that's one of my first questions is so as, as this is as this this hate is starting to brew um it seems like Marston and Wonder Woman are are very intentionally trying to do something about sexuality and, and gender in ways that Superman and Batman very much are not. Like no one's trying to tell a story about, you know, gender ideas of love with uh Batman and Robin the way Marston is. Is there pushback against Martin specific like as the the comic book industry starts to realize there's a problem, is Marston and Wonder Woman singled out a little bit? Like, you know, kinda of like, look, you gotta shut up, you're getting us all in trouble.
1: Um not that i know of certainly as we get into the 50s um i mean wonder woman comics its those early comics that are so weird and so kinky and so much fun um and they get very very toned down and um wonder woman herself gets sort of desaturated a bit um more marriage focused it's a bummer um but you, you start to see you start to see more of that emphasis on like heterosexual pairings. Um so mm. uh in the late fifties, uh DC or mid to late I'm not sure of the exact year, but DC introduces Batwoman um and the first Batgirl, Batgirl with a hyphen, uh into Batman comics to so throw some loving trists at uh Batman and Robin. But the problem is, at the time, comics were also, particularly comics that were specifically aimed at boys, were very sexist and took basically written for an assumed audience of little boys who thought that girls had cooties. So, what winds up happening is you get female characters like Batwoman and Batgirl being introduced and throwing themselves at Batman and Robin. There's a minor green arrow character like this. It's how Lois Lane behaves. And then the male superheroes desperately trying to avoid it and just having like total disinterest and disdain for these female characters. And it's like, you made it more gay.
0: You... Yeah, it reminds me of how the, the creators of Scooby-Doo when people were concerned that there might've been like, too much sexuality among the scooby gang basically wrote that you know ginger and velma and it's ginger what's daphne daphne and velma and rod and fred and uh shaggy are basically each living like little domestically perfect lives in their own houses and it comes off as such like domestic partnership gayness like yeah
1: yeah Um,
0: pretty much but but so pulling us back to this so okay so what's what what's the comic book industry doing in response and, and how does this lead to the cca
1: well so um it's less at this point what the comic book industry is doing and more what um, parents are do- doing and what consumers are doing. I uh, am going to take the liberty of reading another quote from the book. Um, uh, Churches and community groups raged and organized campaigns against comic books. Young people acted out mock trials of comics characters. Schools held public burnings of comics, and students threw thousands of the books into the bonfires. At more than one conflagration, children marched around the flames reciting incantations denouncing comics. The I
0: just want to say, students dancing around flames uttering incantations because we have to stop (laughs) Satanism. Go on
1: it's just like how if you introduce a girl that batman and robin don't like at all it will make them seem straighter uh the offices of one of the most adventurous and scandalous publishers ec comics were raided by the new york city police more than a hundred acts of legislation were introduced on the state and municipal levels to ban or limit the sale of comics soon Congress took action with a set of sensational televised hearings that nearly destroyed the comic book business. The majority of working comics artists, writers, and editors, more than 800 people, lost their jobs. A great many of them would never be published again. Through the near death of comic books and the end of many of their makers' creative lives, post-war popular culture was born. Right. Which is just wild. (laughs) Mm-hmm, sure. and there are, there are anecdotes in this book about these about, about these burnings because you know what would happen was like the town council would be like oh no comics are bad and then they'd be like okay you can't sell crime comics anymore you can't sell like and when I say crime comics I mean like that's the title of the comic or there was one right. called Crime Suspense Stories which I don't know how to pronounce because suspense stories is one word um, okay you can't sell that one anymore like Archie is okay Picture stories from the Bible is okay. Uh,
0: maybe. I so drawing some distinctions. Like, Arch, no one was ever burning Archie comics. No,
1: no. I mean, Arch, I mean, Archie literally has done Bible comics. Like, they aren't published by Archie comics, but there are, they like license them out to a different publisher that like tells Bible stories, and it's just like the Archie characters being like, I love the Bible. So. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's only in like the past decade that Archie's gotten a little a little scandalous um Uh but yeah basically different municipalities would ban specific comics or they would say like we we ban any comic that's injurious to our children which is like okay who defines that um and it wasn't just like small towns in the middle of nowhere like this was happening in new york and la um chicago uh and it was it was controversial. Like the Chicago banned some comics and the Chicago Tribune wrote this blistering editorial that was like, You haven't actually proven that comics cause juvenile delinquency. You've just proven that
0: Okay some so nice juvenile see delinquents
1: there were... read comics.
0: Nice to see there was some pushback happening at least. Yeah, definitely. Um but yeah,
1: so so comics would be banned. Um and there there are these stories in this book of like you know, kids would—the kids who like really got on board with this—who I—I don't know if they liked the power or what—but they'd go around town and be like, "We're gonna ban all of our comics because they're bad." And then there's like all these kids with their little red wagons full of, because they're not—they weren't going out and buying more comics to burn them. They were right. getting their collections, right? Bringing them and, to the the school or wherever, and like setting them on fire. There's one of these anecdotes has a child. Lighting, he's like, first they give a solemn vow that they'll never read comics again, and then the kid who's leading all of this sets a, a match to a Superman comic and says, Then let us commit them.
0: And it's so creepy! It's creepy and it's super fascist. I mean, this is what, like, yeah. I'm not going to do Godwin's Law, I'm just comparing this in terms of fascism. Like, this is what the Hitler youth did, you know? And I imagine that so much of this is A, you, you get the kids that early because it's a kind of brainwashing, but B, Like this is now incredible peer pressure because now if it's you're going to get beaten up after school, if you still have comic books, like that's what pushes people. So,
1: yeah. Well, there are stories, too, of kids, you know, crying as they put their comics on the bonfire because they didn't they didn't want to, but they didn't see how they could not do it or hiding their comics away, like in a secret place so that they wouldn't, you know, they give up the ones they didn't like as much, but they had to save some of them. Like,
0: yeah, it's messed up here I think becomes a really interesting question because let's ask, you know, how many kids like wind up acting out of, you know, like emotional traumas and terrible things that have happened to them because of comic books and how many kids wind up becoming juvenile delinquents or whatever you want to call it and acting out because of the emotional trauma of having to burn their comic books and their friends forcing them to burn their comic books when they're 11. Like, Oh yeah. I want to talk about destroying the innocent. It's probably, this does much more damage.
1: It's, you're you're reminding me of um did you ever read harriet the spy
0: oh yeah i love that book
1: so you're not like the she's got her notebook that she writes in all the time and then her friends find the notebook and she has written some very unfavorable things and so they get mad at her and they start bullying her so she starts acting out because she's being bullied and her parents are like she's always writing in that notebook Probably the notebook is the problem. Something happened at right. school with the notebook. We'll take the notebook away. And her behavior gets much worse. Right. Because, as we keep saying, correlation is not causation.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so clearly the comic books industry is in real trouble. So so what does it do? How do we get to the CCA from here?
1: So, again, you know, they had the, the blueprint of the movie industry to follow here. Um, right. And... Uh, essentially what they did was the Comics Magazine Association of America got together and formed uh, the the Comics Code Authority. They laid out what was called the Comics Code um, which basically said you could publish stuff that it said you... If you do any of these things, if you include any of this objectionable material in your comics, we will not put the seal of the Comics Code Authority on your comics. You could still publish it. You could absolutely still, you could put whatever you wanted in your comic and you could publish it, but the Comics Code would not actually stamp the comic with the seal. And if the comic was not stamped with the seal, many, many, many distributors would not carry it. It depended on the comic a little bit because some, um, some publishers like Dell, um, or like classics illustrated, never used it, but Mm -hmm. Dell published, um, like the Disney comics at the time. So nobody was like, Oh no, this uncle Scrooge comic is going to be too (laughs) sexy and violent. Although some there, there actually is a very famous uncle Scrooge story that did get censored by the publisher because it was too sexy and
0: violent. Um, (laughs) One thing I hadn't realized is that this is – later in in the 50s is when you start to see the beginning of the um, Harry Crumb and the Felix the Cat and stuff like that, which is very sexual and and that that was very much intended to be a we're not going to be CCA approved. Oh, Um, yeah. You get a bit of like this sort of subculture, which does exactly what they're trying to stop because now the subculture, as always happens with with censorship, is like you don't want sex, you don't want violence, take this, you know? Yeah. This
1: directly led to the creation of underground comics because they had to be underground because yeah. they, they couldn't, I mean, they could get published the way they were, but they couldn't get distributed on like newsstands and stuff, which at the time, you know, there weren't comic book stores. You went down to the corner store and you got, a, you know, a Coke and a Twinkie and the latest issue of Captain America or whatever, um,
0: so just to give people an idea let, I, I want us to read through i'm going to post a link to the full cca i'll probably even post a picture in the notes um but uh, if you have it open as well uh just let's, let's just read a couple of these if you want to switch back and forth um sure just kind of grab some of your favorites um so these are the, the things that it says like you can't violate any of these if you want to have the seal so it starts comics shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals.
1: If crime is depicted, it shall be as a
0: sordid and unpleasant activity. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. So the comic book, they would hate Colin Kaepernick. Like, this is like (laughs) any kind of attempt to critique police is just completely out. Um, Yeah,
1: well... And it it's certainly not like the police were abusing any groups, and especially not black people, in the 1950s.
0: Yeah. You, you know what I love realizing this? The song Officer Krupke, from one of the oh, most yeah. wholesome musicals ever written, would not pass this code. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I mean,
1: it's, it's wholesome now that West Side Story was a little scandalous when it came out.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. That was that was
1: Sondheim, uh, feeling his oats for the first time.
0: Interracial um, romance. Um In every instance, good shall triumph over evil, and the criminal be punished for his misdeeds.
1: Um, alright, I'm skipping one, but this one this one is really targeted. No comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. And so Bill Gaines, who who uh, was the head of EC Comics, was like, I mean you're just that's just targeted at us and the other yeah. members of the comics whatever the uh comics magazine association of america were like N- no and he was like our best-selling comics are crime comics and or horror comics and terror comics um there was also a rule about like how big the word crime could be on the cover like literally how many inches it could be like basically this band all of Their bestsellers without actually admitting that it was banning all of their Mm bestsellers. But if you're, again, if you're Archie or your picture stories from the Bible or your Dell or, you know, any of the other like, you know, publishers who specialize in funny animal comics or westerns or illustrated versions of classic literature, you love all this because it's going to put your biggest competitors out of business and you don't have to change a damn thing about your content.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, it, and I mean, in fact, that, that's, you know, that, that's often what happens with censorship is that the people often let, they're kind of happy to help the censorship along or the people who are going to benefit most from it. Um, there's a couple more here about like no nudity, no, no excessive violence, things like that. These are all ones that, you know, kind of make a little more sense here. They seem pretty, pretty uh, terrible in, in this kind of way. Uh, But there's one in particular that I – I I don't want to ever support the Comics Code of America, but I kind of wish they'd bring this one back. Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, did that actually happen? I mean, did you actually stop having the, you know, women with ridiculously proportioned breasts and – always fighting crime in six inch heels for a while, or did it just that part of it get over overlooked for a bit?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that we actually had female characters with, uh, ridiculously disproportionate breasts and six inch heels when this came into effect. Like Mm, what they're talking about is like the Phantom Lady cover that I sent you. Right. Um, they are not talking about the really extreme contorted, uh, like just terrible anatomy and exploitative costumes like yeah you definitely we talked a bit at the front of the episode about like how sexy some of these covers could get but the difference honestly I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real mean right now um, the difference uh, from that era of comics and our current era of comics is that most artists at this time that we're discussing uh, had some kind of uh, traditional training. They had mm. studied how to draw the human form. They knew anatomy because that was how you became an artist. And so they might draw a very sexy woman, but she would still look like she had internal organs because <laughs> they knew how to draw from life. They were drawing right. from life. Um, whereas the, a, a huge percentage of comic book artists working today learned how to draw from comic books. Yeah. Um, and especially now, they learned how to draw from comic books in the early '90s, which are not the height of realism in terms of uh, physique. And yeah. so, there is a huge difference between drawing an exaggerated figure based on life and your own knowledge of anatomy, and drawing an exaggerated figure based on an exaggerated figure. Right. And that's when that those proportions really, really, really break down, um, yeah, and the the sort of you lose that um, basically some artists lose touch with reality entirely. And they're like, that's what women look like. I'm drawing her normally. And you're like, it's just (laughs) a page full of buttocks in a thong. And also I can see her breasts somehow. How is this working?
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, um, yeah, it's just one of those lines there where you're like, you know why it's coming out from a very salacious, you know, very like censorship place, but wouldn't be terrible if comic books still adopted that rule today um yeah. also quick aside when you said like forgive you but you were about to be quite mean i, I thought you were going to go a lot meaner because i thought what you were about to say <laughs> is that the the artists at this point that there was more likely that they had reference of what a female body might look like um, oh but no. like, i think that's <laughs> glad we're not no. going that insulting but artists but, um, today yeah. they have the internet <laughs> yeah exactly
1: exactly um, they have there's and, no excuse you can literally just google life drawing models and you can practice your anatomy take that as cleanly or not as you like (laughs) can i read one more from this because i think ahead. my favorite scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead torture vampires and vampirism ghouls cannibalism and werewolfism are prohibited
0: now i I, love it this is great in general but i think there's a very particular werewolf story you want to tell here is there a werewolf st- Oh, yes! It's like, what?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, a couple decades later, um, that this clause against uh, werewolfism in comics uh, became a problem when a writer named Marv Wolfman started working for, I think it was originally, uh, this happened with a Marvel comic, and... Uh, the CCA saw the word Wolfman on the page and was like, you can't have this. And they were like, no, it's his name. There's no, (laughs) there's no man who turns into a wolf. That's just his
0: name. Yeah. And like, that's hysterical, but I think there's also some great stories about um, times where stories got shut down that, that don't even seem to break the code. They're just pushing issues that are uncomfortable for white middle America to talk about um, like racism. Um, You want to tell the story of judgment day and what happens there?
1: Sure. Um, so Judgment Day was published by EC Comics um, in Incredible Science Fiction number 33, uh, which was published in 1956. So at this point, um, the code had been in place for two years. EC had had they had canceled a lot of their books because they had to. Like you'll see that the, you'll note that the title of this is Incredible Science Fiction and not Crime and Horror that Stabs You in the Dark. Um, <laughs> right. Which I that's copyrighted, don't steal that. That's my comic that I'm gonna publish. There you um come. so it was it was a short story, it was not the whole comic, um, written by Al Feldstein and drawn by Joe Orlando. And in it it's set in the future, and an astronaut who is wearing a space suit the whole time, so we can't see his face, but it's implied that he's human, um, arrives on a planet um, to see if they are basically enlightened enough to join the Galactic Republic, which is the UN of planets, essentially. Right. And this planet is populated entirely by robots. And there are two kinds of robots, orange robots and blue robots. And the astronaut notices very quickly that blue robots are treated differently, that they are forced to live in what is functionally a ghetto called Blue Town. And uh, they don't their their education isn't as good. They're deprived of a good education and then they can't get good jobs and then they don't make enough money to survive and eat cogs or whatever the robots are doing. Um, and, like, they're treated as second-class citizens and the orange robot talks a lot about how you have to keep them in their place and, you know, those people. It's, it's deeply, deeply, deeply unsubtle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even before we get to the end, it's not a subtle story. Right. So... At the end, the astronaut says to the orange robot who's been giving him the tour, listen, you guys cannot join the Galactic Republic. You are not ready. Your planet is messed up and you're not enlightened enough to be part of the you know, interplanetary community. Um, and the orange robot is like, what do you mean, why not? And the astronaut is like, I think you need to do a lot of soul searching to figure out why not.
0: Mm-hmm. And he gets back
1: into his spaceship and he flies away. And as he does, he takes off his helmet and we see for the first time that he's a black man. Right. Which again, this story is not subtle. It's not subtle before <laughs> that last page, but that last page really drives it home. And it's, you know, it's it's a very well told and beautifully illustrated story. And that yeah. panel, it's still that panel still delivers a punch. Like it's it's a very good story. Um
0: And so, the whole thing is available online, so I'll also post oh, a link yeah. to that.
1: Um so yeah, they submitted it for approval to the CCA and the head of the CCA, uh this guy named Murphy, what was his first name? I don't know. Who cares? He sucks. Charles <laughs> Murphy. <laughs> um, Murphy uh was like, you can't publish this. Uh And they were like, what do you mean we can't publish this? And they were, he was like, you have to change it. The astronaut has to be white. And Feldstein, the writer, was like, what? That's the whole point of the story. No, I'm not going to make him white. Like that, that's the whole point. And, uh, Murphy kept insisting and finally, uh, Bill Gaines, again, the head of EC and Feldstein get on the phone with him and they're like, from all accounts, they were just cursing him out. They were like, fuck you. We're not changing the story. We didn't break any rules of the comics code. And if you look at the 1954 guidelines, there's absolutely nothing in there that says, you can't point out racism or
0: yeah. astronauts can't be black. Like, I don't know what his argument was, <laughs> I was gonna but... ask what's the judge. So what year was this? Was this 56. Okay. So this is when like the civil rights movement has started in earnest at this point. And like, and so I'm guessing that's kind of the rationale is some nonsense about like, you're, you're making a political point and comics shouldn't do that. Or you're pointing out problems with America and comics shouldn't like infect our young people. Like I'm guessing it was something along those lines, or do we just have literally no idea?
1: I, I mean, I think it was just, this makes me uncomfortable, and I don't, I don't like Uh, it. I mean, as I saw somebody talking about this story, um, and uh, forgive me, I can't remember where I saw this, but they basically pointed out, like at the time, Jim Crow laws were still completely on the books in the South. And of course, all of the, (laughs) all of the, uh, non legislated but still very present bigotry was also happening in the north. Um, and what the story essentially says is that the United States is not enlightened enough to be part of a global community, right? Like, it's it's a, it's a call out post, it is really calling our own society out onto the carpet. Again, that's the whole point.
0: So, A, this is a real case of like censorship and, and how problematic this whole thing was and this whole idea of, like, basically, like, you have to you have to hold the status quo and you have to never, ever do things that question it. Um, but there's a part of me that also loves the fact that the CCA was saying if you change the fact that the astronaut is black, you can still publish this. Which is, like, one thing I hear a lot is that um, part of the appeal for a lot of people of science fiction and um, horror and other kind of, like, dystopian or, or futuristic stories is that they're often a way to hide social justice messages or social critique in ways that censors won't necessarily see or that doesn't seem as obvious, you know, and this goes all the way back to uh, the 1800s and like Gulliver's travels being very critical of the, the British government at the time, but told in this way that, that they couldn't quite nail him on censorship. Um, and what I love is we get exact proof of that because if you just tell this metaphor that is very, very clearly an attack on American racism, but never exactly says that, the CCA would have been fine with it. Um, But it's only once you actually make them black and directly connect it to American racism that then they have a problem.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's sort of, you... you That's sort of the trick, right? Like a lot of... Like you were saying, a lot of people are drawn to, to science fiction and speculative fiction because you can do this sort of storytelling and metaphor um which is sort of the the central conceit of x-men but it's also the central problem of x-men which is often largely look how hard things are for these marginalized beautiful white people right and so you know on the one hand the speculative genres give scope to that and give you ways to get around that censorship and like God knows if if uh, Lee and Kirby had tried to have characters of color, uh, oh, yeah. let alone, you know, queer characters, which is the other major metaphor that the X-Men have been linked to in their original concept of the characters, that would not have flown. But at the same time, like, we... I think now we're at a point where we have to... really question when the metaphor is useful and when the metaphor is just a way to, to do exactly what Murphy wanted to do, which is tell a story that makes us feel good about how enlightened we are without actually looking closely at the problems that we are illuminating.
0: And I think that's, uh, that's actually a great question that we should wrestle with when we start to get comics like, like, uh x-men that are trying to be very deliberately um you know uh as well as like when we start to get some of the first black black uh superheroes but they're also straight out of black exploitation. um so yeah that that's definitely gonna be a topic that we touch on what we, in terms of getting back to the cca itself though is there any other kind of important things we want to talk about in terms of uh the code itself well the thing that
1: that has just sort of always struck me about it and this is that we've, we've kind of touched on this but you know it's one thing to say things can't be too violent they can't be too scary. They can't be too sexy. They can't be too um, anarchic or nihilistic or, you know, they have to have a moral. Like, I don't necessarily agree with all those things, but I understand where that comes from. And I don't, they don't horrify me in a bone deep way. But what what is underpinning so much of this is... Like, you pointed out with the references to the police. You can't disrespect the police. Like, before this happened, there were a lot of, like, lovably oafish, I mean, this is also an ethnic stereotype, but lovably oafish Irish cops in the comics, and they disappeared. Like, they could still have an Irish accent, you'll see this on the Adam West show, but they couldn't be fools, um, the way they had been previously. You can't disrespect authority of any kind.
2: Yeah.
1: Um... There was this weird thing where, like, they, they they wouldn't draw the president because, which is like almost approaching a weird religiosity, and like we can't have graven images of the president. <laughs> like, okay, that's hilarious until, to me. Yeah, until um they had Superman meet JFK in if I'm remembering this correctly, the issue came out was written and 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 drawn and everything before, but came out. I believe like a month after JFK was killed.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: Which is just crazy timing. Um, but yeah, like the, the, there's this, there's this element of thought police to the comics code. There's this element of stamping out questioning and difference that is really creepy and suffocating.
0: And I think, and I think, suffocating is the perfect word because I think one thing we've seen throughout history is this strategy never ever works, and it pretty much always backfires. Um, you know, I it's it's pretty clear by now that often one of the best ways to get people to respect authority is to teach a, is to tell a story about how not all authority is perfect and that there are problems, but that the good people will keep fighting to like weed out the bad cops, you know, and and, and all that kind of model um and unfortunately that that can be very good propaganda like that can really help convince people like oh no it's just a few bad apples it's not there's not an overarching problem here but yeah i like say, brooklyn 99 too mm, yeah which is <laughs> hard for me to uh accept cause uh. i love that show so much but that that's a whole other story but I, I know where you're coming from there but when you say to someone like you can never ever have a story about a crooked cop and then a person experiences just one crooked cop, even if it's one out of a hundred million. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wait, my reality doesn't match up to what I've always been told. I need to question this more. You know? And I, I certainly don't think that the CCA causes the 60s, but the, the atmosphere in American culture that, that leads to things like the CCA, that leads to things like McCarthyism, that leads to things like this just suffocating conformity at all costs, absolutely leads to the 60s um and so it's interesting seeing the way that comic books and superheroes like play a small part in that i mean hodge in
1: in the ten cent play kind of argues that the comics code authority did lead to the 60s because that quote that i uh that i read before is immediately followed by um Page one news as it occurred, the story of the comics controversy is a largely forgotten chapter in the history of the culture wars and one that defies now common notions about the evolution of 20th century popular culture, including the conception of the post-war sensibility, a raucous and cynical one, inured to violence and absorbed with sex, skeptical of authority and frozen in young adulthood, as something spawned by rock and roll. The truth is more complex. Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry added the soundtrack to a scene created in comic books.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. That's, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I can, it's a good book. Articles. Yeah. I definitely want to, I read a couple summaries of it and reviews of it for this. And I definitely now want to um, read the whole thing. Um, so the last kind of thing I wanted to really touch on, uh, with this, and we'll, we'll just touch on a couple of things outside the CCA before we close, uh, you know, before I've gone quite a while. Um, what what happens to our characters during this time? I know from um, some of my own research and stuff that, and as you've mentioned, Wonder Woman gets a lot sexy, a lot less sexy, there's a lot less tying people up, and not quite so much of the the very sapphic imagery on uh, um, what or Paradise Island, I guess it's called. What, hap- what happens to some of our other characters in terms of how are they changed to more meet this, either the CC itself or just this general atmosphere?
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, everybody gets less sexy. Um, everybody gets their, you know, stilted in shoehorned heterosexual love interest, like I mentioned. Um, and I don't, I mean, I say everyone, I don't want to like, roll everything up into the same umbrella. But that's not a saying that anybody's ever said, but I've coined it now. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to everybody. But you do get start to see characters like Batwoman and Batgirl coming in as mandatory love interest, um, whereas somebody like Catwoman, uh, who was... I mean, Catwoman, she wasn't even that sexy. Like, she was glamorous. But that was the problem. She was a criminal and she was glamorous and crime was supposed to be sorted. Right. Uh, so she disappeared for over... for a decade. Like, she just was not in the comics because... Interesting. She... You couldn't have a beautiful thief who was having a good time who batman kept letting get away on purpose because he was hot for her which is absolutely what happened all throughout the
0: 40s um, um well like what happens to someone like the joker then or who who very clearly is having a great time as a criminal and doing so in ways that are at least in, in the tales that i've seen but i think from some of the early ones pretty hilarious and pretty fun do you does, does the batman rogues gallery in general get toned down and be less funny and less less entertaining
1: no, it's just they all go to jail at the end. And, like, there was no mm, Arkham okay. at this point. So, you know, the Joker could break out of jail and have a grand old time at the playing card factory, but it, he's going to end up in jail at the end because he has to be punished. Right. Um, and he was also, like, drawn as leering and hideous, which, I mean, that's another sort of subtle aspect to this, mm. but uh, the uh comics under the code have a very strict rule that good is beautiful and evil is ugly which is um considering <laughs> the you know white supremacist and fat phobic beauty standards of our society mm-hmm. it's got some real problematic undertones to yep. it um with uh with superman we really start to see him i mean nobody at this point nobody is a vigilante anymore um by which i mean nobody is is unauthorized everybody is duly deputized by whatever municipality they fight in um so uh uh batman and robin are working with commissioner gordon um superman is you know officially deputized by i think everybody in on the planet um (laughs) And they, so Superman when he first appeared was very much a figure of, I wouldn't say he was like actively chaotic. He's not Bugs Bunny, but there is an element of chaos. There's an element of um, uncontrollable madcap glee and a lot of like smashing his way into places and just causing a ruckus um
0: yeah i mean that 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 cover of the first action comics it, you don't really know that he's a hero you see a whole bunch of people like running in terror from this crazy guy holding up a car you know yeah
1: and he's he he very much fought for the underdog um in the very first issue in his first appearance like he beats up a wife beater there's stories where he's like He's fighting corrupt politicians all the time. Right. That certainly couldn't happen anymore. He becomes sort of the face of the patriarchy. Yeah,
0: that makes he
1: sense. he he becomes this very sort of staid authority figure. Who? Well, another. So you had a couple of problems with Superman at this point in time, um, which fed into each other. One was that uh, because stories couldn't be too violent or too scary or too anything, there, he was never facing off against anything that was really any kind of a threat. Yeah. Um, And the other is that as time went on, he became more and more powerful to the point where, like, when he first appeared, he couldn't fly. Mm-hmm. And as we move deeper into the 50s, he can juggle planets without raising sweat. So... When you don't, when you have a character who is too strong for any threat and you can't really even put in threats that are that threatening, what do you do? Well, um, you come up with reasons for him to act in ways that are just weird Mm. and you put that on the cover and then the reader has to, wants to read the comic to find out what's going on? Like, there's a famous comic from around this era where, like, Superman has a lion head, and it's like, <laughs> why why does he have a lion head? I don't know, I guess I'll read this comic. Or, like, there's a lot of covers where he's being really, really mean to Jimmy Olsen or to Lois, and you're like, why would Superman ever do this? Like, he, there's one where he uh has clearly adopted Jimmy, and Jimmy gives him, like, a smoking jacket for his for father's day or something. And he's like burning it with his heat vision. And Jimmy is crying. Oh, God, <laughs> Why would he do this? Guess we better read the story to find out. And then there's always some like, Oh, he did it to stop an alien invasion or right. he did it because, uh, unbeknownst to the character who's being really mean to this would have compromised his secret identity or whatever. So you have stories like that. You have stories where he needs to teach Lois or Jimmy, but especially Lois about a valuable lesson about proper behavior Um, so yeah, the, the lowest of, as we're getting into now the mid to late fifties, the lowest of this era stops being like Rosalind Russell with a gun and starts being this frustrated would be housewife who can't get Superman to marry her and cries every issue.
0: Yeah, so and, he's, a, he's a patriarchal. He's spanking the the disobedient kids and putting everyone there. I mean, it's incredibly fascist. It's, yeah, he's yeah. incredibly fascist. Mm-hmm. Um, oof. yeah. And,
1: and like, that... on the one hand, these comics—I mean, they are so fun to read. Like, I love Silver Age Superman comics. They're because of these restrictions, they were actually really creative because they had to be and you get the most like the wackiest most outlandish stories but at the same time they're really restricted so again you know i've been reading a lot of silver age stories lately i've been reading a lot of these superman stories that have the green arrow backup stories in them and there's a lot of stuff where like they'll go to an alien planet and they'll be like this is so weird on this planet uh all of their houses are in bubbles but it's still a suburban, like a Pleasantville-style suburban street, but the houses are in bubbles. Like they're, okay. There's no, they'll like change one thing about the expectation of suburbia, but there's no, they can't break out of that sort of like underlying idea that this is what society looks like. Mm-hmm. And I, it hardly needs to be said, it's all white.
0: Right, of course, of course. All right. Well, um, I think next week we're gonna, or, or not next week, but next next time we're gonna talk about the Silver Age and some of the new things and, and kind of what happens to the the CCA and, and how comics pull themselves out of this. Um, but is there any kind of uh, last things? We're, we're at about ninety minutes already, so I want to start wrapping up. <laughs> is there any kind of last last things from this era that we definitely want to touch on?
1: It's just a really interesting time because one of the things um, that it you would ask about was are there still effects today? Mm -hmm. And in the sense that, I mean, none of these rules that, you know, if you look at the rules from 1954, none of them are, hold true anymore. Like you can definitely put a naked vampire in your comic and the word crime on the cover and you're fine. And they can be rude to a police officer. Like it's fine. Um, But this era was so formative for, You know, each comic comic book history is iterative. So what happens in this era is... Happens the way that it does because of the comics code. And what happens in subsequent eras happens the way that it does because of this era. So I think it's important to try to pick out those why that happens Um, and I wouldn't say for example that it's necessarily specifically because of the code that comics are still so white Mm -hmm. and so straight and so male dominated but it's not not that either because Mm -hmm. you know we continually return to the characters who've been around for a really long time and in part because of people like Murphy we don't have black characters really that predate the 70s with the exception of black panther um we don't have queer characters who got to say that they were queer before the 90s and that was specifically forbidden by the code
0: right no that makes a lot of sense and i um kind of one last question i'd ask on that is i know we talked about how you know pre-cca 90 percent of american children were reading comics like it was very very high market saturation um and i know later you start to get into this idea of comic books are for geeks you know that that they're not really maybe you read them as a very young kid but especially if you're a teenager still reading them it means you're you're kind of you're very much not cool um does any of it come out of this of like as the counterculture starts to get started that there is some element of people thinking, oh, comic books are so square. They never talk about the pigs. You know, they never talk about the problems with with our society, and so that kind of like delegitimizes comic books for some kids. That that leads to some of the the stigmatization of it.
1: I think this is just this is just me theorizing. I don't have any evidence to support this, um, but I think it's not exactly that, but it's related. I think it's just that um, the comics code. Reinforce the idea that comics were for kids. Mm. And, uh, as the decades go on, you do see that target audience getting older, and we'll definitely talk about it next, uh, next time we, in our next episode in this series, um, because that was something that Marvel was able to really hit on that DC, you know, DC is writing these goofy Superman stories for eight-year-olds, and Marvel is putting out angsty spider-man stories for 12 year olds um (laughs) right so that that does start to shift but because comic books were carved out as a space that had to be safe for the children even today we see people thinking oh comic books are for kids even though a lot like there are very few comic books published today that i would hand
0: to a young child i'm not giving alan more to a 10 year old i mean it's get, it's
1: getting better there are imprints specifically for kids they're like the dc kids and ya imprints are doing great random house graphic is um all for kids and they're wonderful like but that you know that's because we went so far in the other direction of of defensively saying no comic books are for adults look how many murders we can do in them
0: yeah, I think I'd agree there. And I, to be clear, like I really enjoy the fact that there's a lot of comics that are aimed at adults, and I think you can explore a whole bunch of territory that you might not be able to with some kid stuff. But but knowing the audience, I think is important, and, and having that balance of stuff that is available for all ages. You know, I um, I I love the fact that there is a what what's the one that like that it's basically Har- Harley as a kind of disobedient toddler, and it's very much aimed at little kids. Oh, DC superheroes. Yeah, like, I love that that exists, and I love that Harley Quinn on the DC Universe, now HBO Max, exists, which is very, very much not aimed at kids, Um, you know? And it's good that we have both, but I think it's going to be an interesting story to to continue to chronicle of, like, what are the ages these are being aimed at and how is that responded to? So
1: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, um, real quick, that I just thought of um, about uh, comics sort of falling a little bit out of the, the massive popularity they enjoyed is television um Mm. uh, what like i said at the beginning of this era very few households in america had a television um by the end of it many households did and when you get into the 60s um and television starts to be a little bit more differentiated and there are shows for different demographics like you don't have to pay for that mom and dad pay for that you might as well save your dime and get something else
0: right yeah no that makes a lot of sense all right, well, Jess, thank you again. Um, your historical knowledge here is so awesome, and I appreciate the research you do and and, and helping us learn so much about this. Um, to our fans, what do you think? Um, what is this all new information? There, do you have other theories or ideas about where this is happening? Um, uh, what, what's your take on the CCA era of comic book history and what it means for us today? Uh, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, email. All that information you can find by going to strandedpanda.com and then clicking on the Superhero Ethics link it'll take you to our page, give you everything you want to know. It's also just Superhero Ethics on either Facebook or Twitter. On that page also, you can find information about some of the other great podcasts that are part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. Right now, we're doing some really interesting content on shows like The Boys, uh, and I'm not part of this, but Lovecraft Country, um, both of which are really pushing the bounds of what um, uh, The Boys is based on... um, comic books uh lovecraft country is obviously based on the the horror horror writings of h.p lovecraft um both of them really pushing the grounds of what does it mean to really dive into issues of race and sexism and power and money and justice and all these kind of things um very very, uh the comic book authority would not have had any love for either of those two works Mm -hmm. of fiction um so check those out check out all the other great things uh you can check out some of jessica's writings we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well thank you so much for tuning in and have a great day